there's 60 years of data that says if you have a positive mindset towards aging, my best years are ahead of me and I, you know, I'm excited about the second half of my life, it translates to eight years of healthy longevity. And if you have a negative mindset towards aging, and this is Becca Levy's research at Yale, or are exposed to ageism, right? The most common stereotype in the world. By the time you're age 60, you will exhibit 30% greater memory decline. Mm-hmm. So negative, you know, mindset towards aging is literally killing us at, at like ridiculous. Not only is it taking eight years off your life, it's crushing your memory long before, you know, you're coming to the end. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Hi, I'm Dr. Dan Stickler. Before we get into today's episode, I want to talk to you about a protocol that I'm passionate about that I use in my practice. You know, everyone wants to slow down aging, but few are really doing it the right way. There's something I do recommend for my clients doing just two days a month. It's a bodily cleanse that helps get rid of old defective cells. These are sometimes called senescent cells or referred to as zombie cells. And they are shown to be related to so many symptoms of poor aging. This bodily cleanse is a supplement which contains a group of ingredients called senolytics. Senolytic ingredients help our body to flush senescent cells helping with easier repair and rejuvenation from muscles to joints to how we feel every day. Qualia Senolytic is the bodily cleanse supplement taken just two days a month for healthy aging that you have to try. Now, research on aging and longevity, including a beta study on Qualia Senolytic, shows that Senolytic supplementation can play a huge role in enhancing how we age. Now, to learn more about Senolytic research and to try Qualia Senolytic risk-free for 100 days, Go to neurohacker.com, use the code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, for a free gift with purchase. That's Qualius Synalytic for better aging at neurohacker.com. All right, welcome to this edition of Collective Insights Podcast. I'm Dr. Dan Stickler. I'll be your host for this episode. And I have the honor of having Stephen Kotler on again. Uh, he's a New York Times bestselling author, award-winning journalist, an executive director of the Flow Research Collective, is one of the world's leading experts on high performance. And I can tell you, um, I've referenced his stuff many a times uh, in, in optimizing the high performers that come into my medical practice. Stephen, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you, Daniel. Well, the exciting news is you have a new book out. Um, and it's got an interesting title, and the title actually threw me off because I did not expect to find what I found in it. Uh, but the title is NAR Country, G-N-A-R Country. Uh, can you kind of give us some there. Uh, yeah. idea? Give you some context. Yeah. Yeah. The book is about peak performance aging, so let's start there. Uh, the book is also about action sports a little bit, and we can explain all this as we go along, but uh, okay. action sports slang NAR is short for gnarly. And action sports slang um, is extremely colorful, but because the athletes are performing in sort of life or death circumstances, it's also extremely precise. So very colorful words have very precise meanings. And NAR or gnarly is defined as any environment that is high in perceived risk and high in actual risk. Country, the second half of my title, is any uh, uh, landscape, terrain, fictitious or real. So, uh, NAR country, uh, it turns out is 
I think, a really great description of our later years, high in perceived risk, high in actual risk. And as it turns out, when you get under the hood of peak performance aging and sort of like look at what's gone on over the past 20 years and the fields that come together to bring it, um, a really sort of great description of the gritty mindset it takes to thrive in the second half of our lives. So that's where the title comes from. Excellent. Yeah, I, um, in reading through the book, uh, I loved it because, you know, I that's my area is longevity and age rejuvenation. But, um, you know, you dispel the common myth, and we hear this a lot, is, you know, after a certain age, it's just a downhill slide. You're not going to be able to change or be able to improve upon where you are. And that's just a, a myth that the book helps to dispel. So this is sort of the action sports component, I guess. But, uh, you know, if you were raised, I mean, if you were raised in the 20th century, for sure, possibly even in the 21st century, you grew up with the traditional theory of aging, which I like to call the long, slow rot theory, right? And it's the idea that all of our mental skills and all of our physical skills decline over time and there's nothing we can do to stop the slide. And this theory actually sort of gets its start with Freud. He writes something in, I think, Beyond Psychotherapy in 1907 um, that sort of kicks off the long, slow route theory or kicks it into like high gear. And by like 1995, all we've done is prove Freud right in exacting detail. Like every, we know every single thing that's going to decline and how it's going to fall apart and when and all that stuff. And then starting in about 95, the data starts to change. And this is your field, my field, right? I'm a part of it. And um, I get involved in it uh, for two reasons, three reasons. One, personal experiments in regenerative medicine that I've sort of been running on my own self, my own body, my whole life. Um, flow science runs straight into peak performance aging because flow is one of the main engines of adult development. So it's, it's, it's how we develop successfully as adults. And that goes into how do we have, you know, a successful second half of our our lives. That's right there. And then I was running a hospice care sanctuary with my wife for dogs, which we've done for 20 years. And we specialize in like the worst of the worst. And we were using mostly lifestyle interventions. We would do some medical stuff along the way we were, and getting world-class ridiculous results. We would take dogs with like late stage heart disease and cancer who vets would say, oh yeah, don't get very attached to this guy. He's going to be dead in a month. And we get five more years of healthy lifespan <laughs> and longevity, right? And, you know, really yeah. active because we, we hike our dogs in the backcountry every day. So it's not just like five years hanging around in the house, just chilling. They're doing five to seven miles up and down mountains every day. And then in 95, we start to overturn this stuff. And now what we know is everything that we used to think declined over time. We now know it's all a use it or lose it skill. So if you never stop using these skills, you get to hang on to them. You can advance them far later in life than anybody thought possible. And to boot, in our late 40s and early 50s, there are really profound and beneficial changes in how the brain processes information. And as a result, we gain access to whole new levels of intelligence, creativity, uh, empathy, and wisdom that all really start to come online in our 40s and 50s. And these are these are significant kind of boosts. It's like whole new cognitive superpowers. Like you look at the creativity stuff, it's not just that we get more creative, it's that divergent thinking starts to really come online. And if you've ever tried to train people in creativity, you know you can teach them almost anything, but trying to teach divergent thinking is really hard. And it starts to happen naturally in our 50s. So your point where you, we started with all this is the data, you know, the old idea is you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And what the new data says is, hey, wait a minute, 
old dogs are actually better at certain kinds of learning than 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 the young dogs. So that there's a lot that's going on, and in, in our country, I ran a crazy action sport experiment to try to test this stuff. All this stuff was true in the lab. A couple of people had run some experiments in the wild that were interesting, and I wanted to take it all together and blend it actually into a learning theory and try to learn something that is. I, I tried to learn park skiing in my fifties. And that's sort of the story told in the book. Park skiing for 11 or 12 different reasons is supposed to be biologically impossible for anybody really over the age of 35 to try. And, you know, once you get over like 40, 45, you know, you move past like totally impossible into downright crazy, which was, I was in my 50s. So, you know, even really learning people who would hear about what I was trying to do were just like, you're out of your, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. This isn't possible. And it was, it was remarkably possible, not just possible for me. We ran the experiment with a bunch of other people using the same techniques, and it was possible for a lot of people. Um, and uh, which is, I think, the wildest experiment in peak performance any aging anybody's ever run. Uh, and that's the story told in our country. Yeah, and um, that's the story I hear every day from people. Mm. Uh, the The interesting thing is, you know, I'm 57 now, and you know, after the age of 50 was when the wisdom really kicked in, and um, and I noticed the changes in those uh, those parameters you're talking about with the empathy and the divergent thinking and all of this. Uh, they really came on with that. But um, I've also been actively utilizing tools to to create that through lifestyle and and other aspects. So, you know, your your quote of if you're not moving forward, you're sliding backward uh, is absolutely true in uh, in the aging population see that all the time it uh i think it's true in the asian population and if you kind of like peel back so one you know this too peak performance aging starts young right there's literally stuff you want to do in your 20s in your 30s in your 40s your 50s and this is also true on the psychological side right in adult development we know there are moderators if then conditions at each sort of decade there's a threshold there's a big question you have to solve right to sort of progress um, on and, and and you sort of reference that, but it's um, I think you see it in the aging population, but you also one of the things old is a mindset, right? Aging is a fact of life, but old is a mindset, and it's a mindset for neurobiological reasons that sets up can set up very very young, um, very very young, late late twenties, early thirties, and so the decline can get kicked off fast. So uh, you are right. Over, once you get fifty to 50, if you're not moving forward, you're going backwards. That, But that doesn't say, because I'll give you a simple example. So we know that if you really want to thrive in your 40s and 50s, by age 30, you have to have solved the crisis of identity. You got to know who you are in the world, right? And by 40, you have to solve the crisis of match fit, meaning you have to have a tight fit between who you are, your identity, and what you do with most of your time, right? And you have to live with passion, purpose, and flow. And we know all this stuff. But people don't realize that if you don't solve identity by 30, if you don't know who you are in the world, you can't solve match fit at 40 and everything goes sideways from that point on. So there, psychologically, there are certain thresholds that if you're not actually checking this box in time, you're really going to slow down your progress or retard it completely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've we've noticed that we did a look back at uh, the last 20 years of the high performers that we've worked with. And, you know, what were the five criteria that we saw that they really came for? And, you know, first and foremost, uh, for them was the physical aspect of it. Um, 
But then second was the was really what we call the mind or mindset. Uh, and you talk a lot about this in your book. The, the mindset, we found that people who possess deficiency mindsets in anything like from finances to purpose to anything like that, they had a deficiency. Uh, they were not progressing forward. And then we had uh, a sense of purpose. We had peak experiences and states of awe and finally love. I mean, those were the five five criteria we found that over 20 years, uh, high performers came here with deficiencies in these areas, um, one or, or more. And uh, it makes a huge difference in how they age when they transcend that. Yeah, I completely, I, I, I completely agree. And I, this is, so this is one of the things I always point out to people. There's a whole bunch of really interesting stuff going on in longevity science and regenerative medicine right now. It's phenomenal. It's super interesting. I always tell people like what is real in regenerative medicine at this point is bones, tendons, and ligaments. Everything beyond that is still a gray area. And what's happening right now, I, I, I love the comments. People are like, oh, exclusive medicine is medicine for the rich. And I'm like, you guys don't understand what's going on. I said, there's two things going on that, that it's totally insane. One, none of it, we've got six years of data that say, if you want to live a long time, it's psychological, like mindset interventions, right? That get you the farthest. And, and we can talk more about that in half a second, but I want to make this point. Everything that's going on at the cutting edge in regenerative medicine and longevity science, all that's happening is very wealthy people are running the greatest open source experiment in longevity science we've ever seen in the history of the world. Um, and does it work? Historically, as you know, regenerative medicine, that's about 10% right, 90% wrong. So I'm assuming we're getting better, right? So let's say it's going to be 20, 25% right, which would be an amazing bad a average for like cutting edge medicine, they have to say. But let's say it's really gotten that we're still like most of what's going on is going to be wrong in 20, 30 years where we actually figure out what, what was right, what was wrong. But what do we know? What do we have 60 years of data that's overwhelming about is the psychological interventions that are one completely democratized because they're available to all. I like you just gave your list of, of kind of what you've seen in athletes. If you look at the data, if you look at the 4,000 papers that I, that I, that I read and are footnoted in the book, um, and the stuff I read in the experiment, what you see, if you want to rock to your drop, here's the formula, right? And listen for the comparisons to how many things are in your stuff that overlays on it. You want to regularly engage in challenging, creative, and social activities that demand dynamic movement. And that's dynamic is a shorthand for strength, stamina, dexterity, or uh, agility, balance, and flexibility all at once. So action sports are dynamic activities. Badminton is a dynamic activity because it's using all these things. Dynamic activities that demand deliberate play and take place in novel outdoor environments. That's peak performance aging, like in a complete sentence um, with 60 years of data. And um, it's a, there's nothing in there that's like a substance or an expensive technology or like it's available to so all of us. And those are the big levers. I'm not saying that I like I play with all the regenerative medicine stuff, too, and I love it, but it's experimental and it's um, I think it's small potatoes in comparison to mindset. Let's write, there's 60 years of data that says if you have a positive mindset towards aging, my best years are ahead of me and I, you know, I'm excited about the second half of my life. It translates to eight years of healthy longevity. And if you have a negative mindset towards aging, and this is Becca Levy's research at Yale, 
or are exposed to ageism, right? The most common stereotype in the world. By the time you're age 60, you will exhibit 30% greater memory decline. So negative, you know, mindset towards aging is literally killing us at, at like ridiculous. Not only is it taking eight years off your life, it's crushing your memory long before, you know, you're coming to the end. So the, this is one of the things, and I'm sure you've seen it in your work. I find so fascinating. You know, we've spent the past 30 years really like looking at the mind body connection and every year it gets closer and closer and closer and closer. But when you get into peak performance aging and, and longevity science, it, I mean, like, it's like hand and glove. It's wild how tight it really gets um, and uh, how important it, it really gets. I was uh, doing an interview uh, for a, a short a short film about Brian Johnson and the young guys that were interviewing me, they, they asked me the question. They said, you know, what can we do when we don't have $2 million a year to spend on, you know, this, this health and aging aspect. And I said, the thing that most people don't realize is about 10% of longevity is based on genetics. You have another uh, 15 to 20% that can be from medical discoveries and medical advancements, but 70% is lifestyle. And that's 70% of healthy aging comes down to lifestyle. And that tends to blow people away, which really surprises me because I mean, We've known this one for a long time and it just doesn't stick very well. I, you, I mean, you've seen people love, they love pills and like technology. They like the whiz bang and they like the easy. And um, it's, uh, it's unfortunate also because if you look at this stuff that like peak performance aging really, like what did I, the whole long list, it's fun. I mean, like everything on my list is like a colossal amount of fun, right? So- it's, I mean, it's really funny. They, they want the quick fix, uh, which doesn't really work. Um, or as you pointed out, is going to work. I think the pro, I think what, with the way you, like you said, it's only 15%, but I think the real sentence there is it's 15% of the time. If you have the right genetics for the particular discovery that we're talking about is often the case. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what that is, why that, that, that is. Um, but we see it again and again and again. Well, and with epigenetics, we're seeing the evidence of all of this. I mean, we see how gene expressions change. I mean, over, what is it, over 7,000 genes alter expression by six months of regular exercise, meditation, um, all of these things. I mean, even the thing like APOE4s, people are, are really worried about that right now. But what they don't realize is that an APOE4 risk for Alzheimer's development, if you're a carrier of that, you can implement lifestyle uh, well, changes that will result in a normal risk. The I mean, So, I mean, one of the things that I talk a lot about because flow is so tightly linked to this. So in flow, uh, one of the things that happens is we learn new skills, right? Flow is, in fact, one of the arguments for what is flow from an evolutionary perspective is it's an internal signal of mastery. It's a way of your body letting you know you have mastered this skill. You know what you're doing, which... Um, confer and there's that doesn't seem to be the only sort of evolutionary cause for flow, but it seems to be kind of like one of those spandrel benefits that has really worked in our favor. Though I could be I could be wrong about my spandrel benefit classification completely. I'm I, I'm guessing here on that one, but um, so on the other side of a flow state, wisdom increases and mastery increases. Mm -hmm. What do we know about 
staving off Alzheimer's and dementia, no matter what your genetics is. You want to build up cognitive reserve. How do you build up cognitive reserve? You build up cognitive reserve through expertise and wisdom, right? Because they're the most diffuse, redundant neural networks in the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain most vulnerable to cognitive decline. Um, so expertise and wisdom massively amplifies that. Those are, those are, that's not a pill, first of all, right? Let's talk about the first thing about that. But expertise and wisdom in what? And this is where it gets hysterical. This is Yaakov Stern, right? The godfather of cognitive reserve who's in Columbia does work on so-called leisure activities and discovers that for every, each additional leisure activity we learn. So you learn to play the drums, you teach yourself math, you, I'm learning to draw, you you can take up park skiing, if you do whatever, you get an additional 8% uh, protection against cognitive decline. So that when we talk about like lifelong learning as really important for staving off Alzheimer's and dementia, et cetera, et cetera, we've got like, we know what you get from each leisure activity. We know they stack. And it, you know, it goes on and on. And one of the reasons I stressed uh, dynamic motion and novel outdoor environments. So part of the formula I gave you, dynamic motion. So when we move dynamically, and I, you probably know this, um, it stimulates. So dynamic motion is I'm, I have to be, I have to use strength and coordination at the same time, right? For example, skiing or skateboarding or playing tennis for that matter in a lot of cases. Um, it amplifies both angiogenesis and neurogenesis. So you're getting new blood vessels to support new neurons and you're getting new neurons. Novel outdoor environments, where do most of those new neurons show up? Hippocampus. The hippocampus does map making and location also does long-term memory, but it is map making. It's location, grid cells, place cells. So if you really want to stimulate neurogenesis, angiogenesis, and protect the new neurons that you get, which is how we stave off cognitive decline, novel activities in outdoor environments, what the brain was designed to remember. And so you, you know, you can boost all this and all everything we're talking about, as you pointed out, these are lifestyle interventions. But what are the, the longest lived communities in America? People think it's the blue zone, La Melinda, California. It's not. It's Summit County, Pitkin County, and Eagle County, Colorado, where people live 10 years longer than every place else in America. That's home to Aspen, Vale, Beaver Creeks, outdoor activity, central and Mecca. And you, and you see it in how long people live and, and the quality of their lives. It's interesting. I just got back from a place called Mazama, Washington, which is up in the Cascades. And it's a small little town and people of all ages there. And, and there are some very elderly people that were out on bikes climbing these mountains uh, and i was just amazed at how fit they were and i'm sure that uh, that their longevity is probably pretty significant as well because they cross-country ski in the winter and they uh, bike and hike in the in the summer it's just amazing this is so this was funny in our country like early early things in our Years ago, I, I want to go back to the late 90s. I, I remember having discussions with Laird Hamilton, the big wave surfer. Mm -hmm. And I would see, he was seeing things in the surf community that I would see in like the ski and snowboard community. We were having conversations about people performing at remarkably crazy high levels in their 60s and 70s. And um, this was long, and, and you know, you sort of notice that action sports, you go to these towns, these action sport communities, as you pointed out, and you, you, you look at the age of participants. On ski mountains, you got a bunch of kids, and then you got a bunch of people who are over 60, 65. 
but I, you know, I ski a lot of Palisades Tahoe with a community of mostly professional athletes, um, and including current Olympians and, and whatever. And invariably the person at the front of the pack, like whether there's a group of skiers or snowboarders together is a guy named Tom Day. He's 67 years old <laughs> and there could be like 20 year old Olympians in the back. He's the guy up front and it's cause nobody can get him. And like, you know what I mean? You start noticing these things and you're like, huh, those old stories about anything. They can't like either, either this, I mean, I don't know. Uh, so this is one of the things that happened to me in, in my pursuit of peak performance aging. I don't know if you know this story, but um, one, 15 years ago, I was going to write a, uh, a novel about a cat burglar and I wanted the cat burglar to steal something cool. And I was like, oh, musical instruments, rare musical instruments. That's a cool thing to steal. And I quit. Next question. What are the rarest musical instruments in history? And I started digging and it turns out Stradivarius, Antonio Stradivarius, one instrument maker out of billions owns the record for like half of the most priceless instruments in history have been made by this one person, which is just bizarre. Could you imagine if like half of the most important paintings or books were written by one person? It's really weird. So um, that all, it just caught my attention is like, what a weird detail. Let's learn more about Stradivarius. But never really paid attention to. And then I learned that he crafted two of his most famous and priceless instruments when he was 92 years old. So one, this is in the 1600s, right? So like before the advent of modern medicine, and two, that was the like the big change when I when I went. Wait a minute. Either everything I've been told about aging is wrong because there's no way a 92 year old man can make two of the most priceless instruments in history if fast twitch muscle response declines over time, if fine motor performance declines over time, if cognitive performance, right, on and on and on. There's no way that can happen. And um, I, you know, as a, as a science guy, I tend to, I don't believe in anomalies. I don't think, oh, guy, this guy is one in a gazillion. I think, nah, this is Stradivarius. This is probably a whole swatch of the population. And our theory is probably wrong because it's not matching the data. And I don't, I didn't, the data just didn't feel extraordinary. You know what I mean? There was no thing in Stradivarius life about like longevity and health and like what he did to stay. And, um, but it, what he did do is he never stopped making musical instruments, use it or lose it skills. He, he made over a thousand instruments in his lifetime, which is incredible considering, you know, he had no modern instrumentation whatsoever to make any of it. Um, so long story short, but, or long story, but I just, it was, that was where it started for me was I was looking at these like weird cases of like, wait a minute, this either, either what I'm looking at is impossible and wrong, or our whole theory has to be wrong, which is turned out was the case. Yeah. <laughs> it, the, you know, there's a, a question that, that comes up for me because it, this is kind of what I've observed and this is all anecdotal, but, and it seems like you're in the same state as, as I am, but um, our community, we tend to hang out with the all age groups. So in in our close community, we have from 24 to 75 year olds, uh, very diverse backgrounds, but having, uh, being around the younger people has made a huge difference, I think, for us as far as uh, really feeling that more youthful, vital state uh, in ourselves, have you have you seen anything or any research on that? In yeah, so there's a, there's actually a ton here. Uh, uh, so let's just start with what do we know? The healthiest societies where they where people age the best have 
cross generational friendships is one of the founding. So, so we know, right? You hear a lot about the importance of a robust social life over time. That, by the way, right? You want to talk about another psychological intervention? Seven years to your life to maintain a robust social life. This is really interesting, by the way. If you're morbidly obese, smoke cigarettes, are an introvert with a bad mindset towards aging, and you want to live a long time. If you change your mindset and make some friends, you're going to live longer than if you lose weight or quit smoking. It's amazing. And nobody talks about that, but like, yeah. well, no, right? Really well known. And, uh, but when you dig into the social stuff, a couple things are really clear. One, at the heart of every site where people really thrive, all the blue zone communities have this, by the way, in, in Deb Butner's research um, and in many other places, they have cross generational friendships. It's really important. Um, and we can talk. Uh, let me, I'll, we, when I'm done saying what I'm about to say, ask me about risk aversion and I'll talk about why, right? But really important. The other thing that is you see, and this is something people talk less about, but it's, it shows up again and again in the research. If you want to sort of thrive in the second half of your life, you need to make replacement friends. So you, uh, in, a lot of people tend to form friends in their age group and not younger. And this is really, really common. And what happens is if you are successful with your approach to longevity and healthy aging and that sort of stuff, um, you can find yourself the last person standing. And like, it sounds like one of these really extreme statements. I've got, there's two people in my life. I, so I have a friend who will go unnamed, who is literally one of the most famous thinkers from the 20th century. And he's part of, a, he's part of sort of those group of thinkers in the 1970s who thought in a very big picture, holistic, weird way that, and literally all of this, I call him up and I'll be like, oh, Stephen, it's so great to talk to you. Nobody's called me in a month. And he's not kidding. And all of his friends have died. So it's not only like he didn't make replacement friends. There's nobody left on the planet who thinks like him. Mm -hmm. He thinks like, like this sort of elite critic, you know, the Marshall McLuhan's of the world, yeah. right? He was part of that group of people and they're all dead. He's the last one who's left. And they're, it's just wild. He didn't make replacement friends along the way. And so they really, really stressed it. I, by the way, you know, my, the CEO of the Flourishers Collective is 30 years younger than me. My chief of staff is 20 years younger than me. Um, I do this all the time. And the one of the main reasons is, of course, risk aversion naturally increases over time. And if you want to thrive in the second half of your life, you have to fight against it. And one of the ways you have to fight against it is expose yourself to new ideas new thinking, new activities, all this stuff. And you get that with younger folks as a general rule. So um, healthy on a billion different levels. Yeah, so let's go into this. Uh, that billion, by the way, that's, an anec uh, that's anecdote. That's not, that's not science. <laughs> yeah. So how about this risk aversion? Uh, yeah, so it, uh, go into it. this is interesting. It's got some, so here's some, there's some geeky stuff with it too. So risk aversion increases over time and um, which is, pretty well known. It's not true across the boards. Social risk aversion does not, right? You get to be at like 16, you know, like you give a fuck what anybody thinks and you're like willing to walk up and say hello to anybody. So that sort of goes away. Um, and if you work with money, if you work in the markets or that sort of thing, financial risk tends to, uh, does not decline. But if you're unfamiliar with money and you're worried about retirement, financial risk obviously starts to spike. Um, all other kind of risk declines over time. This is problematic for a lot of different reasons. So fear, risk aversion, 
which is essentially fear. It's higher anxiety. Risk aversion is a polite way of saying you've got more anxiety about more stuff, right? That's all we're talking about. So there's a huge, as you know, there's a huge penalty there. From an aging perspective, right? Nine known causes of aging. What do they have in common? Stress and inflammation. It's the only thing. So anything that fights inflammation, anti-aging tool, anything that increases inflammation, stress, anxiety, is aging you. So um, this is another reason why walking in the woods is so good, right? Because it calms you down. Um, and it's another reason that flow is so good for anti-aging because it resets our nervous system and flushes stress hormones out of our system. But um, I'm sorry, you asked me a question and I got sidetracked. We were talking about risk. A delicious risk tangent. Delicious. <laughs> risk conversion, thank you. By a delicious tangent. So uh, you want to, for anti-aging purposes, you want to fight this anxiety. Uh, also, because underneath the hood of anxiety, one of the main things you get is norepinephrine. And when norepinephrine levels get higher, you block learning. So if we know lifelong learning is how we stave off cognitive decline. You've got to be really careful with like stress levels because you can end up blocking learning and you can end up blocking creativity, which all of these things have really significant consequences uh, in the second half of our life. And um, some of it is uh, interesting because uh, some of it is they've been trying to figure out why does risk uh, aversion increase over time. And uh, there's a bunch of different sort of psychological reasons. And then there's a decline in white matter. Uh, especially on the temporal lobes, right? And what happens is processing speed slows down, and your brain goes, "Oh, you're not you're not quite as quick as you are." So let's let's be a little cautious, right? Now it turns out, um, I don't know if you've had uh, my colleague Dr. Adam Gazali on the on the program, but if you know Adam's work, then um, you know that uh, processing speed is is trainable over time, right? It's one of those things that's trainable. And here's the cool thing. Uh, this is really neat, and you probably know this as well. But one of the one of the cutting edge things going on is the relationship between bone health and brain health. Um, and bone density decreases over time. We're getting really better at sort of fighting that. But one of the things that happens is I don't, most people just don't realize that the bones are the mineral factory for the body, and then it includes things like where does the calcium that your brain runs on come from? It passes the blood brain barrier, and a lot of it comes from your bones. So as that declines over time. That appears to be one of the things that impacts processing speed. So this is what I like about peak performance aging is, is we're discovering that everything is trainable, but in weird ways. Like you can trade up processing speed by improving bone density, yeah. which is, right, those are, that's not a sort of normal chain of causation, but it appears to be true. And I, I think that's kind of cool. But anyways, um, fighting that will seem to fight risk aversion, but you know, risk aversion is take risks, you know, regularly, you just want to regularly take risks. This is by the way. So since you have a geeky audience, I can, we can go here. People, where does the, where does the mindset of old come from? Where does that, why do we get in this old mindset? It's because when we're younger, we are predominantly addicted, being driven emotionally by the seeking system, which is predominantly underpinned by dopamine and norepinephrine, which are wildly fun. Neurochemicals, you cocktail them together, you get romantic love. Everybody's favorite feeling on earth, right? Um, it's a very addictive high. Then you get to be about 30 and you trade the seeking chemicals for a whole other set of chemicals because around once you start getting things you want to keep, where you're no longer seeking, now I've got the job. Now I've got the right partner, the right spouse, the right house, the right apartment, the right career trajectory, all of it. You 
swap your addictions. You're no longer interested in norepinephrine and dopamine. You now you want serotonin and oxytocin and endorphins, these stable or protect and conserve, rest and relax chemicals that help you hold on and keep right what you have. And this is good, right? This is why we raise our children and don't abandon our children. So it's a good thing. But what happens when you get to peak performance aging and risk aversion, the minds, the proper minds it, you realize that you have to reboot the, your addiction to dopamine and norepinephrine. You actually need all five of these sort of neurochemicals and all five of these motivators in this, mm -hmm. in like the latter portion of our lives, really working together. And you're only going to get that dopamine, that norepinephrine from seeking behavior, right? From taking risks and going out in the world. And we know again and again and again, this is why the first thing I said about peak performance aging, you want to engage in challenging and creative activities, right? That, that starts with challenging because if you're not starting, there's so many of the other things fall apart. And bonus, if risk aversion goes up too high, if norepinephrine goes up too high, it'll block flow. And flow is so foundational to peak performance aging um, that you're causing yourself even more pain. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned something earlier. Um, it was, you talked about deliberate play. And in the book, you talk about the difference between deliberate play and um, deliberate practice. Can you kind of unpin that yeah, for? for sure. So, um, so one, deliberate practice is Anders Ericsson's idea about what does it take to get to mastery, to expertise. And this is, this was colloquial Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours. It was 10,000 hours of deliberate practice that you need. Now that 10,000 hours turns out to be not an accurate figure, um, as we all mostly know at this point. Um, and it, by the way, deliberate practice, uh, d is defined as repetition with incremental advancement, do the same thing over and over again, just do it a little bit harder, right? Push a little bit. And it turns out when it comes, so we talked about the importance of lifelong learning and skills mastery and all that stuff for people from aging. It turns out for learning, deliberate practice is uh, it's, it's very effective, but only, and Anders himself pointed this out, at very specific kinds of learning. If you're trying to get better at the violin or math or a couple other very specific subjects, music, um, certain kinds of music, classical music, deliberate practice works really, really well. Um, but for most everything else, and we see this again and again and again, uh, it's not the fastest path towards mastery. In fact, there have been a number of challenges uh, to that. I, Anders himself mounted the first one, uh, David uh, Epstein in his brilliant book, Range. On the second one, I, in Rise of Superman, kind of lay out the fact that flow seems to cut the path to mastery in half. And that's what we were seeing in action sport athletes in the 1990s. Um, and by the way, I, I knew before Andrews passed away, I, I knew him. I got to meet him at, a, at the Santa Fe Institute a couple of times for a peak performance conference. And he agreed with me like um, about, uh, about deliver practice and these ideas. But Anyways, what the data has shown is that if you're really interested in in mastery and learning, deliberate play outperforms deliberate mastery most of the time. Deliberate play is repetition without repetition. It's repetition with improvisation. So do the same thing you did before and then improv on top of it. And what's the big deal? There's a couple of big deals here. One, the obvious psychological. It's playful, right? And so there's no shame. There's no embarrassment. There's less self-consciousness. So all these things that tend to block learning tend to go away. Um, so that's that's huge. Two, deliberate practice, the most neurochemistry you're going to get if you do everything right, right, is a little bit of dopamine. 
because you've done the thing you did before and you've just taken it a little farther and the goal-directed system is going to say, oh, let's reward this with dopamine. Little, and that's good. That's going to help you cement it into long-term memory. It's better than no dopamine. But with deliberate play, you get dopamine, bigger hit of dopamine and endorphins. So much better chance that this memory is going to get turned into long-term storage and going to become actual learning. So um, that's that's really key. The other thing I like to point out from a dopamine standpoint with deliberate practice, there's one right answer. I did the same thing with a little bit of improvement. With deliberate play, there's one wrong answer. It's only I did the same thing I did last time. Every other answer, right, 360 degrees around the problem is a correct answer. You're learning, you're gaining information, and you're rewarded neurochemically, which is why play outperforms everything else as a, as a learning tool. And then there's seven or eight other psychological, cognitive, neurobiological, health and wellness benefits of play um, that, that are downstream of that. So from a de-stress, peak performance, aging, longevity, everything you want to play out, deliberate play is, is really um, sort of a great way forward. But the most important one is, and this goes back to exactly sort of where you started, which is the old dog can't learn new tricks. One of the reasons and why they thought mean learning to park ski was impossible is because we hear about this motor learning performance window that's open in childhood. Don't become a ballerina after 18. Don't become a, right? Um, and it's because this motor learning window slams shut. And like a lot of these, these truisms, it's only sort of true, right? And it does, there's a window and it does sort of slam shut. But what really changes isn't um, the brain's ability to learn difficult physical activities. It's that we stop learning like we did when we were kids. We play as kids. As adults, we get really, really serious about our learning. And as a result, a lot of things shift. And that's so a lot of what we thought was that motor performance window is actually no. It's how we approach learning itself. And if you sort of reboot what kids do naturally, um, you can reboot a lot of the same learning processes. Not entirely. There's some, as you know, right? There's there's parts of that. There are kind of neuroplastic changes that are that are going to happen, and things are going to be a little trickier. But it's a lot. Same thing for learning a language, right? Um, if you're playful about it, when you're when you're older, you're going to learn much faster, and you know that than if you're kind of leaning into it. I think we're seeing a lot of. Uh... A lot of rethinking of uh, developmental windows now in in many areas. Uh, I know I just got back last week from the psychedelic sciences um, conference in Denver, uh, and there were like twelve thousand people there. It was amazing. Yeah, I heard it was huge. Yeah, um, I heard it was amazing. Gull Dolan, who I've spoken with before about this, um, she presented a topic um, or her research on MDMA. She's a, she researches it at um, Hopkins. And she found that the social reward and social uh, developmental window, which closes during kind of late teen years, um, can be reopened for um, roughly a two-week period after a single dose of MDMA. And well, didn't they, by the way, didn't they, I don't know where they did the work, but they found with ibogaine, the, yeah. like the neuroplasty, they, and they cut the experiment down. The window hadn't shut. They actually like ran out of funding or something. I, I need to look into this. I just heard this story and I'd never heard it before. And I was like, is this real? That the, yeah. the window stayed open so long they ran out of funding before it actually shut down, which is kind yeah. of amazing. These psychedelics are uh, are 
creating all new uh, possibilities uh, for people. But what I was getting at is too that you know even though that was MDMA opening that, it just shows that we can reopen these windows and lifestyle is is another way that we can actually create these opportunities. It's um and they really are sort of opportunities, right? Like that's sort of really I I let me back into this for half a second and and when you when I wrote Bold, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time, I mean, like, you know, running around the country giving speech, the world giving speeches and talking to CEOs. And I do more of this work at the Flourish Collective. I'm sure you do too. And invariably, with in, in my experience, when, when CEOs get to talk to folks like us, one of the things you ha- you talk a lot about hiring and training, right? How do you hire for peak performance? How do you train for peak performance? And I would, and I'm sure you do this too, you know, my first question whenever I'm in this conversation was, well, what exactly do you want? Because those are pretty broad categories. Like, what exactly are you looking for? And so for years, I would hear the same two things over and over. I want the following two things in my employees more than anything else. And I've come to think of these as like the monitors of the 21st century business. The first was I want creativity and innovation because the rate of change is so damn fast that if I can't, this is this hard thing that we're not great at. And if we can't figure it out, we're clearly going to be out of business. And this was obviously, you know, this is the lesser singularity university and exponential growth and, you know, um, welcome to the world of AI, et cetera. Um, the second thing I heard is, uh, was actually surprising is that I see people, what they really said to me is they want empathetic employees because, and it was, yeah. it was three reasons. One, all the psychological safety stuff, right? That was starting to come to the fore and people realized that if employees didn't feel psychologically safe, they weren't going to perform well. Forget about like happiness and well-being and thriving like you were just crushing it and you can't have any psychological safety without empathy. But the more important point was that I think Jeff Bezos sort of like declared that the mantra of the 21st century business is customer-centric thinking. And if you don't have empathetic employees, nobody can think like your customers at all, like period. And obviously you in today's, with with today's uh, social political climate, this is also a mandatory, but the point was we talked earlier about, uh, what happens to changes in the brain in the second half of our life. Like we get new intelligence, new creativity, new empathy, and new wisdom. Right. And it's really, it's, as you pointed out earlier, it's very profound. This means that the over 50 crowd, the very people who are like push people are pushing out of their companies right out. These are like the dream employees of the 21st century, <laughs> but it's, it's a, there's a caveat there, right? Because it's not every over fifty year old. It's well trained. Because if you mm-hmm. if you if you haven't first of all risk aversion. Here's like if you have that if you have norepinephrine in your system, for example, right? You haven't trained up risk aversion. You'll never get the heightened creativity because norepinephrine literally divergent thinking, which is what you get in your in, in your fifties, that comes out of, mainly out of the anterior cingulate cortex, which finds far flung connections, right? And it does this based on how much or how little norepinephrine is in that part of the brain at any one time. And the more norepinephrine there is, the more logical and linear you get, right? With the extreme example being fight or flight, but it's a spectrum of experience. And you can't like, that's like, so as an employee, you're blocking it. But the whole point I wanted to make here is you were talking about like sort of counterintuitive. We, you know, and this is, this is the thing that sort of blows my mind because I'm like, well, there's a business revolution hiding inside of 
you know, longevity and peak performance aging. And like, we're seeing it, you and I are seeing it just like we're seeing the athletes sort of do it. And we're, and, but it, it has, it's starting to creep into the world, but it's like, it's one of these huge changes that's coming in the next 10 to 15 years. And, um, it's really, it's super interesting. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm excited to see where it goes as the, as the data starts coming in on this for sure. Um, on, um, one area that I mentioned earlier that we've kind of seen, and I see the healthiest agers essentially, um, the, one of the aspects is that they experience, uh, peak experiences, states of awe or states of profound gratitude on an almost daily basis. And the ones that are really like really having a rough time with the aging process, they can't even remember their, their last state of all. I mean, it's yeah, we've seen anything like this. So yeah, I've seen a bunch of stuff. So one, Chick set me high before he died. I don't know if you know this, his last study was on flow proneness. He wanted to uh, know, do we crave flow? Do we need flow until the end of our life? Yes. So we crave flow. We crave these altered states of consciousness until the very end of our life. Um, work that came out of, I mean, good God, this is uh, Bob Keegan pointed this out, right? That like, uh, the more peak experiences you have over time, um, kind of the better, the better chance you have moving up the pyramid of adult development. But here's the big kicker, and it's nothing. It's as one, we see this with flow. So when you experience super positive emotions, and the two most powerful positive emotions we think are uh, mastering control. Uh, right, a, se a sense of I've, and it, and it has to do. This is able to survive for survival reasons. As we add skills, we become more adaptive, we become safer. So it's, these are the big highs for us from an evolutionary purpose. You get them in flow, right? Both those students, what people don't often realize, uh, Barbara Friedrichson did this work. A bunch of other people have done this work. I'm sure you know this. When you experience super positive emotions, so mastery, control, love, really deep love, a couple others, it amplifies T cell production and killer T cells. So you're, you know, you're, the immune system is getting boosted. We've known this for a while, but after killer cells, this is tumors and syphilitic cells. So like cancer, one of the leading killers on earth and syphilitic cells, one of the nine major causes of aging. Um, and so regular access to peak experiences is flushing this stuff out of your system, resetting the nervous system is the other thing, right? You see this. I don't know if there's a nitric oxide flush in awe, which is what usually pushes the stress hormones out of your system with flow, um, or if there's another, uh, how much awe resets the nervous system. But, and one, you know, gratitude is, is a no-brainer because it calms you down as a de-stressor. We've also, we, were, we did some really cool work uh, with Glenn Fox at USC, who's, who's one of the best neurobiologists on gratitude. And we worked on gratitude movie flow, and we found that, People with uh, regular gratitude practices tend to be more flow prone. So you're getting, there's a direct link between gratitude and more peak experiences as well. I would not be surprised if, as you, what you mentioned, the same thing shows up with awe. That would not surprise me um, either. Uh, so, you know, we're seeing the neuroimmunology of like, why is this happening? What, you know, why are peak experiences so important? And, uh, and the other thing is we're getting better and better at generating those peak experiences. I like, I, I, I'm really interested in sort of like combinatory therapies for longevity science in terms of like thinking about altered states, uh, for example, like 
What is the best combination of like microflow, macroflow, awe, maybe psychedelic experiences, maybe meditative experiences? Like, what is that? One of the things that I'm really excited about uh, AI for and ChatGPT is this exact kind of help solving combinatory therapy questions because the variables are infinite, I think. Yeah. And, um, and I think every so I, I think everybody's going to be very very individual here, and I think that's an AI that's a, that's an AI problem, or it's yeah. a smarter than Stephen problem, one way or the other. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned uh, that um, Barbara um, Erickson's study, and uh, it reminded me. I remember when she worked with uh, Steve Cole out of UC, UCLA, I believe, um, and they studied happiness and the people who were eudaimonically happy had an improvement in their immune systems, whereas people who were hedonically happy actually had a suppressed immune system when they looked at it. That's interesting. Yeah. That's not entirely surprising. Um, I want, that's interesting. What's, what's weird about that is that sort of tells you that it's not, it's not just the dopamine, right? We're not just yeah. looking at sort of like uh, re clear reward chemicals that there's something more, much more complicated, uh, going on. Um, which I think it, which, which I think is true, uh, anyways. Um, but that's cool that yeah. I, I like that. I love that study. So before we go, I want to get into, um, and tell us about what kind of exciting research you got coming up. So, um, fun stuff. Uh, so we published a piece, uh, we published a piece of the first few seconds of flows, an article for uh, Neurosense about behavior reviews, let's say like three or four months ago that looked at the uh, kind of neurobiology and neurodynamics of so a systems neuroscience approach to what happens in the brain as we transition into flow. Uh, we just did the exact same thing for intuition. It's a neurobiology and neurodynamics accounts with, with many of the same. Scott Kelso is, is, is on the paper as well. And uh, some other some other folks uh, are working on that with us. Um, we are then uh, we are just starting uh, some research on the intersection between flow and intuition. This has been worked on before, uh, but we're trying to figure out. We know anecdotally that intuition is louder in flow, clearer in flow, and maybe anecdotally at least more accurate in flow. And the question is why. And we have we have some ideas, and that there's cool stuff going on. So we're working on that. Uh, we've got uh, a bunch of papers that are about to come out. One on caffeine and flow. Um, short short answer is like if you're looking for a cheap blow hack, coffee is your friend. Um, not that you know, not that this is surprising. They really anyone flow follows focus, and all the flow triggers drive focus. And coffee does a lot of different things, or caffeine does a lot of different things, but it certainly drives focus. Um, uh, though obviously you can overdose. There's too much caffeine, and then it's yeah. going to keep you out of flow. But like. That's the long story short. We also, uh, uh, we are at the front end of um, studies about uh, pain in the gym, really, which is where we're working, and uh, we're tolerance for pain and mindset and the neurobiology of tolerance. This is going to move towards some flow and pain studies and some stuff like that. But we're really, you know, I, I like to start with really basic science and sort of work my way forward to the complicated stuff. So uh, we have some stuff there. Um, you have some good examples of that in your we, book. Yeah, we are. I'm also, we're working, uh, uh, we actually just, this is cool, with a couple other neuroscientists, we're working on a Springer textbook on performance neuroscience. It's going to be mm -hmm. the first 
textbook anybody's written on performance neuroscience. So I'm working on that as well. Wow. Uh, that's really uh, exciting. And I think there's three or four other studies that are ongoing that uh, are, oh, uh, the coolest study, uh, what I'm really looking forward to, uh, this is with uh, Adam Ghazali's lab at UCSF, a couple other people, uh, jump, which is the a base jumping simulation. And it's a sort of an experiential, which with ER helmets, but it's actually simulation so that you jump and there's a crane that, so you float and there's blah, blah, blah. It's, it's as realistic as anything we've ever seen. And we think, you know, most of the experimental paradigms for te testing, testing flow are, eh, eh, you know, I've got a video game and we think it's putting people into flow. And I'm always looking at that. I'm like, well, if you like video games, it is. <laughs> but like, if you don't play video games, that's not a very flowing, you know what I mean? And there's, you know, there's other people who are like, there's some studies where they like use math problems to get people in the flow. And I'm like arithmetic problems. Like I know mathematicians who are literally professional mathematicians who can't get into flow doing arithmetic. So like, what are you doing with some of these paradigms? So we're really excited about that. And it's, um, we're looking at, we're tracking like seven or eight neurophysiological markers in that study and including, um, one of the cool things about the first few seconds of flow paper is, as I said, we found two or three or four actual different neural markers for flow, um, flow state onset that had, people hadn't found before. And so we get to look, we get to try to hammer on those and figure out, you know, what's real. I, I'm sure a couple of them are real and I'm sure a couple of them are just like make believe or not quite right or something along those lines. So we're going to get to hammer on that stuff starting in the fall. Um, and then there's, and we've got a whole new flow and AI center as well. Right. So we're doing a whole bunch of stuff, stuff with AI. Yeah. It sounds like you're like me. I just love coming into work. <laughs> I, it, do we call it work? It hasn't been worked for a really long time. No, it's play for me for sure. <laughs> well, it's been a real pleasure to uh, speak with you again, Stephen. And, um, you know, everybody out there go out and uh, get in our country. You will enjoy the read for sure. You might have a couple of all moments in it as well. So thank you. Well, thank you, sir. It was fun hanging out with you again. I appreciate you. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. 
Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.